Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel. I'm talking today with Maureen Terry Carroll and Elon Ricken, uh, the authors of Geometry, the Line, and the Circle. This is a textbook published by the Mathematical Association of America Press, which is an imprint of the American Mathematical Society uh, in 2008. It's the 44th volume in the AMS-MAA textbook series, which comprises upper division texts with an emphasis on the quality of exposition. And on my reading, this book delivers on that aim. Elon Maureen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Corey. Uh, And thanks for having us and uh, taking the time to choose the book and to read the book. It was a delight on my end. By way of introduction, could you say a bit about yourselves? How did you come to your current positions? And how are you inspired to write this book? So this is Elin. Um, I've uh, been at uh, Muhlenberg College for uh, over 20 years now, and I've uh, consistently been teaching geometry for uh, even longer than that. And so uh, we got interested in uh, writing the book because uh, through basically through teaching the course, um, geometry is uh, the oldest and one of the largest branches of math. And um, I was trying to come up with a good entry into the field that was so vast. And so I chose uh, Euclid's Elements uh, because it's a primary source and uh, students normally don't get a chance to, to read primary sources in mathematics. And uh, it also allowed me to, to really focus on the role of axioms in a geometry. So I was able to very early on introduce sort of alternative geometries and work uh, sort of in a hands-on way with my students and uh, help them understand the role of, of, of how an axioms uh, uh, shape or um, change geometries. And so my students over the years encouraged me to turn my notes into a textbook. And I started on this project when I was on sabbatical in uh, 2013. And uh, this is Maureen. I'm, I'm at the University of Scranton. I've been a professor there for 25 years. And I've taught history and mathematics there for nearly all of that time. I've been teaching geometry for about the past decade, and uh, certainly I've always been drawn to using original sources whenever possible uh, in mathematics. And when Elin asked me to join the project uh, back in 2013, after she started writing up her notes, I was happy to to jump on board. I don't think either one of us at that time knew that it was going to be a (laughs) a six-year-long project to produce the book with uh, it turns out Elon teaches in the odd years and I teach it in the even years. And so every year one of us was working from a, a different uh, version of our manuscript. And our students helped us to hone it along the way, which was really nice. And so the book came out in December of 2018. And last fall was the first fall I was actually able to teach out of the book, which was uh, a gratifying experience. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, your use of original sources, and this is also something I noticed was not very common, at least in my uh, mathematical training, um, and something that I've come to appreciate a bit more, having uh, read more mathematics history books, uh, and so I really appreciated that aspect of your text. Um, you're clear that the book is intended for a one-semester course for upper-level undergraduates, but is there a larger range of courses you imagine it could also serve as the primary text for? So uh, clearly it's best suited for an upper-level geometry course. And um, our secondary ed 
uh, students are required to take this course because if you're going to teach high school or middle school uh, mathematics, you're expected to be able to teach geometry. Um, certainly another, since, since the book has a heavy focus on the history of mathematics, it could be used in a history of mathematics course because when you teach history of mathematics, you have a lot of options. And so since, uh, honestly, the majority of the history of mathematics is the history of geometry, you really could use this book to do a focused history of mathematics course. Uh, another possibility is many departments have what is known as a proof course, sort of a, a transition between calculus, differential equations, to more uh, theoretical upper-level mathematics courses. And this would be or could be used uh, with this emphasis on both axioms and proofs as a book for uh, such a course, but it, it would definitely be a focused. But um, we encourage anyone who is interested in learning about geometry and its history um, to explore or read our book. We think it, uh, they, they would enjoy it. Yeah, the, the comment on uh, using it as a, um, for a proofs course makes a lot of sense to me. In particular, proofs courses offer the instructor a lot of variety in what sort of content they decide to use to illustrate the notion of proof. And your book surveys a wide variety of geometries, Euclidean, of course, but also spherical, hyperbolic, taxicab, finite, projective. Um, one question I wanted to ask was that while there is a variety included, many are necessarily omitted. Uh, for instance, elliptic geometry on the real projective plane and projective, or sorry, planar geometry using Minkowski distances other than those associated with taxicab and Euclidean. So um, can I ask what guided your selections of these geometries to include and their organization in the text? And are there any you wish to yourself you'd been able to justify including but couldn't? Uh, well, the, the primary guiding force in, in how to start is to follow the master, which is Euclid. I mean, when you learn high school geometry, you are learning Euclid's geometry still today, 2,300 years after it was originally written. And he is, uh, he is the master. And he starts out, Euclid starts out with 10 axioms. And an axiom is something in mathematics that you have to take to be true before you can move on and, and, and do some more mathematics and, and prove some things. And of the 10 axioms that Euclid takes right at the start of his book, The Elements, there are five that have an algebraic flavor and there are five that have a geometric flavor. And the five that have an algebraic flavor are things that nobody would disagree with, like equals added to equals are equal, or the whole is greater than the part, things like that. Uh, the five geometric, uh, the five axioms that have a geometric flavor, they're usually called postulates. Uh, they start with between any two points, there exists a line. And the second one says that you can take any line and extend it. Those first two postulates give us our straight edge tool in Euclidean constructions. The third postulate is the one that says, given a radius and uh, a point, you can draw a circle of that radius. That's the thing that gives us our compass tool in Euclidean constructions. The fourth one is an odd one. It just says that all right angles are equal. I think everybody can believe that. Uh, and it's with those nine assumptions, those nine axioms, that Euclid's, Euclid can prove the first 28 propositions in his book. It's almost half. It's a little over half of the first book of the elements, which has 48 propositions in it. And that geometry that you get from those first nine things that you assume is called neutral geometry. It's that last assumption, that last axiom that caused all the trouble. 
The last axiom is called, it's the fifth axiom. It's the fifth postulate. It's called the parallel postulate. And it's a complicated statement. It, it's lengthy. It's lengthier than every other statement. It almost requires a diagram to understand it. And um, historically, it was controversial because mathematicians read this thing. It was very complicated. And they said, wait a second, we should be able to prove that from all the other axioms. And so they spent 2,000 years trying to prove this fifth postulate, the parallel postulate, which essentially says this. Euclid doesn't write it like this, but it essentially says that if you have a line and you have a point that's not on that line, there exists exactly one line through that point that's parallel to the given line. And that was the controversial postulate that Euclid avoided using as long as he could until he could no more avoid it. And once you start using that axiom, you've left neutral geometry and you're into non-neutral geometry. So we take a break after neutral geometry. We stop and we say, let's go look at some other fairly easy to understand in natural geometries to understand the role of axioms in terms of what you can prove. And the two that we pick are spherical geometry, which is a pretty easy sell because we live on a big sphere, and taxicab geometry. Now, taxicab geometry uh, uses the same coordinate plane that Euclidean geometry does. So the points are the same as they always are. The lines are the same as they always are. But what changes is how you measure lengths or distances. So instead of the normal way to talk about the distance between two points, you take the sum of the vertical and the horizontal displacement. And the word taxicab comes from the idea that this sort of mimics distances in a city where you have a sort of a square grid uh, and you can't drive, uh, you know, in any which way you have to drive horizontally and vertically. Um, but um, by doing this, uh, we allow our students to um, explore what propositions from neutral geometry still hold in these other two worlds. Because there can be arguments can be made that the, 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 the nine axioms still hold in both of these worlds. And so by Euclid's own reason, he, the propositions should hold. And yet, surprisingly enough, many of them do not. And so this is why we choose at this point to highlight those two um, alternative geometries. Now, historically, the first non-Euclidean geometry uh, obtained by assuming the parallel postulate doesn't hold. So in other words, from what Maureen said, you have the line, you have the point not on it. And this time you assume you have more than one parallel line through the point to that other line. And, and if you do this, you get what is commonly known as hyperbolic geometry, which has a very rich history and can um, be easily discussed axiomatically. And so that sort of... Um, motivated our decisions as to which and where we should include these geometries. Now, um, in terms of ones we kind of wish we might have included, elliptic comes to mind. This idea that you can take spherical and you can look at two antipodal points and you can associate them. But um, for us, uh, the book was sort of big enough to allow different paths for um, those who wanted to teach a course in it. And, and so we sort of thought it, it had become... Uh, it, we were happy with where it was at. Yeah. Um, so back on the topic of original of original sources, you also uh, allude or make use of more other historical sources, much more recent than Euclid. Um, you include direct translations of Euclid's proofs by Thomas Heath, Thomas Heath and pictorial statements of them in the spirit of Oliver Byrne. Uh, so I wanted to ask... Um, adds a great deal, this contributes to the elegance of the text as I read it. And I wonder what value you find 
in it um, that rises above uh, what might otherwise be a conventional treatment. Um, well, first, thanks for noticing the book's design. Uh, we have to admit it was really important to us uh, that the book be visually pleasing uh, and have those visual elements and be published in color. And uh, I guess we should take a moment to thank the editors at the AMS and the MAA for doing such a great job with, with, with our book. Um, so as we've mentioned, uh, Euclid provides the scaffolding for the entry in, in, in our journey through geometry. And, and Euclid uh, Elements is sometimes called the Bible of mathematics because it has had more editions than any other book besides the Bible. But the edition that is the definitive translation is Heath. And so um, something that are uh, to note is that Euclid's propositions and its proofs are completely verbal. They have um, no symbols. Um, sometimes the proofs would have like letters to talk about points or uh, segments, but there really is no modern um, language or symbols. And so one of the guiding ideas that we had is that um, we want our students to sort of read the verbal proofs and then rewrite and update them using sort of their own modern language and notation. And you, you mentioned the little pictorials uh, I'm, I'm a visual learner. And so when I would read those very wordy Euclidean propositions, I couldn't help but do the thing that I always do, which is I would just give myself a little mini diagram and just at a glance, I would be able to look at it and know what a certain proposition was saying. And I found them to be very helpful. Uh, I encouraged my students to do the same thing and they found them to be very helpful. Eventually, I, I, I was able to figure out how to code them and make them electronically. And then I was able to give them as, as handouts to students. And then eventually, we ended up in incorporating them into the book. And yes, we do freely admit that the pictorials really are an homage to Oliver Byrne, who, if the listening audience uh, has not heard of Oliver Byrne's beautiful, just gorgeous uh, version of Euclid's Elements. It, he only covers the first six books, so it's not the full Euclid's Elements. Uh, it was published in 1847, and he really intended to revolutionize the teaching of geometry. He thought, he really did think that with his method, which was all colored diagrams, so in other words, if two geometric figures were equivalent, they got the same color, right? So everything was done with color, very few words. It was aesthetically pleasing. It was minimalist. And he said, it's going to take students only the third of the time to learn this material if they just follow my method. Uh, unfortunately, his method never caught on. Uh, but it was, re, it, was, it was kind of discovered again 100 years later. And then just in 2010, a company in Japan put out a, a version of it. It's beautiful. If, if you're interested, you should, you should take a look at it because it's, it's certainly a gorgeous version of, of the elements. And so as Maureen uh, mentioned, we're both uh, visual learners. So anytime we could add a visual representation of the mathematics, um, we were inclined to do so. In fact, um, our book had the most images or figures that uh, any that the MIA or the AMS had ever published. Yeah. I noticed that you also use, in addition to GeoGebra, which we can talk a little bit about later, uh, the Geometer Sketchpad, which I used as a kid when I was first learning geometry uh, outside of my high school curriculum. And it was a very fun experimental playground. Uh, and so I really appreciate the access that students have now routinely to these sorts of software programs. So in addition to the artistic flourish, your book is also organized around a narrative flourish. 
uh, this animating conceit that the line and the circle are complex characters with roles and conflicts that you use to dramatize the subject. Um, was this more of an arbitrary constraint, like imposing caustic structure on a narrative? Or did you feel compelled by the content to spotlight these objects and animate them in the way you did? Well, the, the thing to realize is that the first three postulates of Euclid, they give rise to the line in the circle. They give us our Euclidean tools, and they're the, the tools that give rise to our two main characters, uh, the line in the circle. And so uh, because these characters are in the first four books, the, the, they're largely devoted to the line in the circle. Uh, sometimes the line takes the starring role, maybe in the statement of a proposition, and then the circle gets to take the starring role within the proof. Uh, they tend to go back and forth, uh, but it was a natural to us. It was a it was natural to focus on the line in the circle since they're the two figures that we get from our Euclidean tools. And it also allowed us to bring in sort of a cultural perspective. So one of the things very early on is we have our readers look at two essays that were curated by Marsha Asher in her book, Ethnomathematics, A Multicultural View of Mathematical Ideas. The first is called The Stretched String, and it's written by Davis and Hirsch in 1981. And here, the line is the primary object that uh, they see in nature. The second is an excerpt from Black Elk Speaks. And so this is a completely alternative philosophy from a Native American viewpoint. And here, the circle is nature's choice. So we wanted to get across to our students that even in different civilizations, one is seen, seen as more primary than the other. Um, so interestingly enough, one of the things that students begun to become uh, aware of is that in any axiomatic system, you actually need undefined terms. So terms that you, know, you can't possibly define, you just have to sort of take. Um, and in geometry, point and line are generally two undefined terms. But that doesn't mean you can't understand them. So just because you can't define it doesn't mean you don't understand how they behave and how they interact. And so, um, and ped pedagogically, um, having the focus of those two main characters gives students a touchstone. So no matter what geometries we end up walking through, they can always go back to those two main characters and say, "Okay, how do they behave here?" You know, it gets interesting when you get to the sphere and it turns out that, hey, a line is actually a circle on the, on the sphere, right? Because a line is, is that, like the equator line is a, is a circle on the sphere as well, as a line. Yeah, and in taxicab geometry, um, because of how distance are measured, if you try to figure out a, a circle, uh, by definition, is a set of all points that are the same distance from a center. And in taxicab, that turns out to be a square, right? Um, it, there's a model in hyperbolic geometry where lines are semicircles. And so there's a lot of uh, playfulness that comes from looking at these two objects in different geometries. And challenging their preconceived notion of what that circle is is very important to us. <laughs> and what the line is. And what the line is, yes. You mentioned uh, the first non-Euclidean world you dive into, which is spherical geometry. And one of the things that fascinated me looking through the book was the Lennar sphere. Am I pronouncing yes. that correctly? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, which I had not come across before, but it's certainly on my gift list. Um, mm -hmm. In contrast to the software tools we mentioned earlier, I wonder if you could speak to the value you get as instructors or the value students get as learners from these more tactile learning aids. Uh, well, uh, yeah, as an instructor, I'm, I've, like, on my bookshelf in my office, there's a pile of things that are devoted to 
you know, visual props that I like to bring into all of my classes. And so uh, the Lenart sphere is a good way to have a hands-on sphere that students can work with. To describe it for the listening audience, it's essentially a big plastic, hard plastic uh, sphere that you can draw on with a dry erase marker and then wipe off when you're done. It comes with a spherical straight edge and it comes with a spherical compass, which allows uh, the students to play with making circles on the sphere and, and making lines on the sphere, which turn out to be, to be great circles. Uh, I, we will freely admit that they have become much harder to find now uh, to buy. They, they are expensive and uh, they're hard to find. Uh, you can get them on eBay, but we have alternatives for that. Yeah, so I have collected the the Leonard spheres over the years, and I have about a half dozen or so. And so um, when I am spending a, a week on spherical geometry, I take my class and I break them into groups, and I give each group a sphere, and I allow them to take the sphere home with them and, and walk around campus with them. And students get asked about it. They get stopped. <laughs> like, what are you carrying around campus? Um, but as Maureen mentions, um, other possibilities are things like tennis balls or lacrosse balls. Yeah, I've had students who are field hockey players and lacrosse players, and they'll bring those with them that they can write on. Um, our departmental assistant knows that I do this when I teach geometry. So every time she gets a shoe box mailed to her, it usually has a big rubber band around it. And so we'll use those huge rubber bands on either big plastic balls that you can buy at the dollar store and use those to show lines on a sphere. So there are a lot of cheap ways to get around uh, having these things in the classroom. You don't have to get a Lenart sphere, though they are quite nice. In addition to these uh, tactile or exploratory aids, there are also what I would think of as several historical aids. Uh, these vignettes that describe the origins and the motivations and the, um, the takeaways, the, the benefits accrued from the development of mathematics. Um, and you have several of these... Um, boxed biographies of historical geometers throughout the text. Um, one of whom I was not familiar with is Mabel Sykes. Could you say a bit about her and her contributions? So we ran across Mabel uh, when we found her 1912 book. It's a source book of problems for geometry based upon industrial design and architectural ornament. And it has over 1,800 exercises on proof, construction, and computation, and nearly 500 illustrations. Now, it was reprinted in 1994 by Dale Seymour Press, so you can still get a copy of it today. It's, and the exercises, they're all based, what she did was, it's really amazing, work of scholarship. It's, she has taken geometry problems that she gets from architectural design elements on buildings from all over the world. And she did this in 1912, which is amazing to me. I mean, now with the, with the internet and with the ease of travel, it, it would be easier to do this sort of thing. But she was able to do this over 100 years ago. Uh, and the problems are fabulous. Uh, Mabel Sykes herself, uh, there wasn't much known about her. There's no biography that you can find in a book or online. So we did a bit of digging because we were a bit fascinated with her. And there aren't too many people who do know about her. Uh, turns out she was a high school mathematics teacher in Chicago for 39 years, and she published over a dozen articles, and she published over about a half dozen textbooks uh, for, for high school courses. 
And we certainly enjoyed learning more about her after seeing the designs in, in her book. We're coming up somewhat in order to your chapter on axiomatic systems, which I didn't f fully appreciate the importance of in my own, until my own research questions kind of demanded it of me. Um, this is the first undergraduate text in which I found such a clear discussion of axiomatic systems. And because I think it captures something unique to mathematics as a discipline, could you talk about the interplay, um, about using the systems and in particular about the interplay between formalizing the system and building usable models of it. So we try to make a distinction between a, a system and its models. Um, we do this uh, in spherical geometry. For example, we just look at the model. We don't try to axiomatize spherical geometry. The same is true for taxicab geometry. We just look at the model. And so um, what is true is that if you have a model for a system, anything that you can prove in the system using the axiom should hold in the model. And so for us, this allows us to try to talk about missing axioms. Um, in the case of taxicab geometry, one of the things that we look at, um, the listener may recall that uh, triangles are congruent if they have uh, corresponding sides that are equal and corresponding angles that are equal the sets of us. But um, from, from your high school geometry course, you may re remember that there are congruence schemes. So there are things like side angle side or side 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 or angle side angle or angle angle side. These are the four that hold in Euclidean geometry. And so one of the things we explore early on on the sphere is, well, which of these still hold? You know, it, once you figure out what it means to be a triangle on a sphere, um, which of the congruence schemes uh, still apply. And it turns out that side-angle-side and side-side-side and angle-side-angle hold, but angle-angle-side does not. And so the question is, well, why not? Because based on our assumption of what a model is and, and, and the fact that it satisfies the axioms, it should. And so what this suggests is that Euclid missed an axiom, that there was something that he needed that he did not assume to be able to prove angle-angle-side. Um, this is even more spectacularly uh, evident in taxicab geometry, because the wonderful thing about taxicab geometry is that no congruence schemes hold. And in particular, side angle side does not hold. And this is Euclid's fourth proposition. And so he thinks he's proven it, but clearly he has not. And this is the first time you can show your students this, in fact, and Hilbert does this, should be an axiom. Side angle side cannot be proven given neutral geometry, that instead you have to assume it or something very much like it holds for you to be able to go on. And so this is uh, this distinction between axioms and models is crucial for us understanding um, how to identify missing axioms in Euclid's uh, set. So coming towards the end of the text, um, throughout you rely on external results in a few places along the way, um, such as the calculation of arc length which requires a bit of calculus. Um, I expected your final chapter on constructability to similarly depend on results from abstract algebra. Um, the way, these, the, way the um, problems of Greek antiquity were finally resolved. But you surprised by characterizing constructible numbers and resolving those problems using Hilbert's axioms. So why did you make this decision? Well, Typically, in an undergraduate geometry course, 
it's upper it's an upper level course within the major that has certain prerequisites and usually you want to keep those prerequisites as low as possible to allow for a greater number of students to take the course and to be ready for the course as soon as possible so on the one uh, one on the one hand it's a it's a practical concern right we don't want students to have to take a modern algebra course before they take a geometry course and are able to understand this idea. There's that. But then there's also the other concern, which is that we would like our book to be self-contained. In other words, we could say, if a student, if you have a good knowledge of calculus, you can, the rest of this is self-contained and you can do well and you can understand the material that's in this book. So in terms of course design, um, in addition to what I found to be more traditional exercises, some of the things you ask students to do are to translate propositions of Euclid into modern mathematical terminology and notation. Um, later on, when you get into non-Euclidean geometries, they're also asked to reproduce these um, results, either to repair the proofs so that they work within a new geometrical setting, or determine that they in fact don't and find counterexamples. Based on your experience, experiences teaching the course, what do students gain from these exercises? Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about what students gain from the, the translating part of things. Um, first thing to, to realize uh, is that Euclid's propositions are all in words. They're all given in words. And so the act of translating from those words to a more modern take on those involves using proper symbolism and modern notation and also understanding the statement of the proposition. There's some work to be done there. Uh, but I'll also say this. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel was a movie a few years ago that's based on an Austrian author by the name of Stefan Zweig. And Stefan Zweig, as a young sort of apprentice in the, in the literary arts, spent a lot of time translating the French masters. And as an, as an older man, he said, you know, if you, if you want to become a good writer, he would, he would recommend that to any young author is to try to translate the works of some masters. And the reason is because you, when you do that, you have none of the pressure of creating the story. You, you learn the, the logical structure necessary to, to I'm sorry, you, you, re, you learn the, the structure of a good story, but you don't have any of the pressure of actually creating the story. The same is true with translating Euclid. You learn the structure of a good proof. Uh, you learn how what's necessary to write clear and correct proofs, but you don't have the pressure of actually creating that proof. Uh, I have to say that just this week, I heard James Taylor give the same advice to young songwriters uh, from his point of view. When he was asked what, what he would tell a young songwriter, he said, well, you know what? You should take a, a good song, listen to it, and then start making changes to it until you've made enough changes so that you have your own song. And, and that was his his take a great song and change it. He wasn't very specific about how to do it, <laughs> but it's basically the same advice. So as for the repair and refute, um, I've talked about this a little bit, but the idea is that once you've seen the proofs of Euclid's propositions, um, if you consider them in another geometry, you really get to see which axioms are necessary to prove the proposition. And so it, it allows you to sort of step back and, and look at the role that the axioms play in, in the propositions and their proofs. And so this uh, helps the students um, see which uh, axioms are missing from Euclid. 
The other thing we need to do is we need our students to take ownership of that material right from the start of the semester. And the act of translating and actually writing it in their own hands helps them to do that. So one of the things, um, if you were learning geometry 100 years ago, you would know that Proposition 147 was the Pythagorean theorem. Now, our students, uh, generally speaking, don't. But um, after taking this course, they, they once again are, are familiar. They know that 115 is vertical angles. Honestly, most PhD mathematicians don't know that either anymore. <laughs> they did at one point in time, but they don't anymore. So in addition to exercises that are presented in the text, um, I wonder if what learning techniques you've incorporated into your courses that may not be commonplace, but you think have proved effective, um, whether they've been, whether they're tied into the text exercises or complement them. Uh, well, I think we both do, there's three things that we both do that we've uh, come to do over the years. And one of them is as part of sort of taking ownership of those Euclidean propositions in, in book one. At the right at the start of the course, our students present the propositions. So it is, they're translating on their own, and then we walk them through every, you know, they give a, at least a half a dozen presentations throughout the semester where they're, they have to actually show the rest of the class that they can prove this, uh, prove a proposition. That's one of the things that we do. Another thing that we both do is we have, we both have workshops. So we have workshop materials with hands-on, either for the spheres, we're bringing in Lenart spheres, or they're bringing in their own spheres. And in taxicab geometries, we bring in lots of graph paper so we can explore those ideas through discovery method of a workshop. And then the other thing that we, we both use is the virtual laboratory that GeoGebra package gives us for them to play with virtual constructions through GeoGebra. Could you go actually into a little more detail about the GeoGebra software labs? Uh, you include these with the text as a technology supplement um, and which instructors can download from the textbook website. Um, what do they consist of? What role specifically do they serve and how do they complement the rest of the work uh, that students do in the course? Well, if you're, uh, if you're of a certain age like we are, when we used to do Euclidean constructions back in the day, it was with a piece of paper and with an actual straight edge and an actual little usually metal compass that you slip the pencil into. Uh, but these days, it's, it's much, much better to use a, an electronic version of that, a digital compass and a digital straight edge. And GeoGebra is a software package. It's, a, it's for PCs, it's for Macs, it's for, it's for any of your mobile devices uh, that allows you to do this. It's a, it's a dynamic, synthetic geometry package that gives you a digital compass and a, and a straight edge. And what I mean by the fact that it's dynamic, it, I mean that when you create geometric uh, elements as you construct them, if there's a relationship between one, the next element that you put on the screen and the previous, then later on, if you decide to move one of them, everything else will respond in kind. So it's a dynamic sketch. It really does allow the students to play in that digital uh, sandbox with their geometric constructions and to test out ideas. So the labs are mainly constructions and they uh, follow Euclid initially. So we start with bisecting angles and segments and drawing perpendicular lines and parallels. And uh, we 
construct centers of, of triangles and regular polygons. Uh, and then later when we move to hyperbolic, we use um, GeoGebra to construct uh, one of the models, uh, the half-plane model. And we end uh, the, the book, uh, the lab book with transformational geometry, this idea that you can um, rotate and reflect and translate objects uh, without distorting them, without changing the distances or the angles between them. Um, so as you mentioned, when uh, we for, for years we used a program called Geometry Sketchpad, which was originally um, produced by Key Curriculum Press. But uh, unfortunately, they were bought out, and the company that bought them out is retiring the product. And so we uh, wanted to find a replacement, and GeoGebra is free. You can freely download it. Uh, it's actually a much wider program. It has capabilities far beyond uh, simply being an electronic straight edge and compass. But a few years ago, they did introduce an applet that lets us use it much as we did Sketchpad. So it lets us ignore a lot of its other features and just go back to the idea of a, a blank sheet of paper and the ability to draw circles and lines and, and create synthetic geometry. Coordinate-free geometry, we should say, right? Synthetic geometry, no coordinates. So we've talked about a variety of these tools. In addition, um, you mentioned later in the text uh, the the use of the Mark Straight Edge to enhance the constructibilities of um, uh, the, the Euclidean paradigm. Uh, in addition, throughout the text, there are online software resources that students can take advantage of for specific for constructions in specific geometries other than Euclid. Um, taken as a whole, are these resources pretty easy to find, accessible, and affordable on a classroom budget? Uh, yeah, most of them are free. So with the exception of the Leonard Sphere, I think that's the only thing that we mentioned that you actually have to pay for. The software we mentioned is easily downloadable um, uh, for most platforms. So since much of your style and discussion are historical, I have a question from that perspective. Do you imagine this book as a sort of nth edition of the elements or as a commentary on it? in the commentary tradition? Or rather, do you see it as a contemporary textbook that uses the elements as a frame of reference? Certainly the latter. Euclid's Elements has 13 books. While we do cover all of book one, we cover um, some but not all of books two, three, four, and six. So clearly it's not all of Euclid. Um, instead, we use Euclid to provide us with a roadmap. And so book one guides us from his first proposition, which is to construct an equilateral triangle, to uh, the last two propositions, which are the Pythagorean theorem and its converse. And the other nice thing about that is that Euclid provides us a springboard, right? Students come into the course, they already have some idea of geometry from their high school geometry, and that is Euclidean geometry. So they feel very much on board right from the start. And then we get to rip the rug out from under them as we use Euclid as a springboard to look at other geometries, uh, spherical and taxicab right away, right in the the first few weeks of, of the classes. So it does allow us to explore axiomatic systems and different geometries. Uh, it's definitely uh, our frame of reference. And in the concluding section, you have this wonderful quote, um, amidst a wonderful paragraph, um, immersing ourselves in other geometric worlds is akin to experiencing life in another country. Now, when my family or friends or my students ask me to justify having to learn some or other branch of mathematics, I'll typically resort to, it's important to, you know, to learn structured logical reasoning to help improve your critical thinking, or the essential tools of mathematics are foundational to science and engineering and business. But you spotlight here and elsewhere in the text, 
the aesthetic and humanistic value of mathematics. And I wonder if you could comment on that as an equally important justification for the discipline. Uh, so this is an interesting question. And actually, we're thrilled that you found that we spotlight the beauty of mathematics and the aesthetic of mathematics, and that your takeaway is that there's an appreciation for the value and value for the beauty of mathematics that you found in the book that, that makes us happy. And that mathematics is a human endeavor, right? That that comes across. We're very happy about that. Uh, so to rephrase your question, um, sure, I agree with you. Everybody's going to say that mathematics is useful and that it's practical and that it solves problems and that it helps hone our problem-solving abilities and our way of thinking. It trains our mind. Lincoln, as a young lawyer, when he was out on the circuit in Illinois, he would go from town to town and he would make sure he had a copy of Euclid's Elements with him and he would study it by candlelight because he knew, he knew it would make him a better arguer. It would make him a better thinker. It would make him make better arguments. Everybody believes all that. But basically you're saying, hey, should mathematics be studied because it's beautiful and, uh, or because it's a human endeavor? And unequivocally, we say, yes, that's true. It should be studied because it's beautiful. Um, I would make the argument that we need beauty in our lives, right? There's that old Chinese proverb that says, if you have only two coins left, you should buy a loaf of bread with one of them. And with the other, you should buy flour, right? Because the bread sustains us, but it's the flour that gives us joy and gives us life, right? It's the beauty. And so we need that. Uh, and mathematics is beautiful. And the thing about mathematics is that it's unique in its beauty. I mean, the thing about mathematics is that it's timeless, right? A proof that Euclid gave 2,300 years ago is still valid today. Um, high school biology isn't Greek biology, right? That changes. Or high school chemistry isn't Greek chemistry. That's changed. But mathematics is, is timeless. Also, that it's a universal language. It's global. It crosses cultural borders. Um, like art and music, it's found in every civilization that has a written record. And, but the thing is about mathematics, in order to appreciate its beauty, there's a hurdle that you have to get over, right? And the hurdle is that, um, you know, if I listen to a, a piece of music or if I look at a visual art, whether it's a painting or a sculpture, I can have a response to that. I can have an opinion about that. And unlike those things, recognizing mathematics beauty requires training right? There's that hurdle. It's a language in and of itself. You have to understand something about mathematics in order to appreciate that beauty. So in some ways, it's almost like the dragon that's eating its tail, right? Like, yes, you should study it because it's beautiful, but yes, you need to learn about it in order to appreciate the beauty. So um, aesthetics definitely informed our choices of what to include in the book. Sort of on the obvious note, we thought it was very important to include beautiful examples of artwork, that related to geometry. So we've included art from Escher, Crockett Johnson, Kandinsky, Leonardo da Vinci, Holbein, Raphael, Kelvin and Hobbes, um, <laughs> and uh, Eugene Yost, who wrote uh, the book Beautiful Geometry with Eli Mayor that was published in 2014. And so we wanted the aesthetic, the visually stunning art to accompany the book. But we also used it to help inform which proofs we included. So often in mathematics, there is more than one way to prove something. There is um, creativity in how you show something to be true. And um, mathematicians often find beauty in some of the choices. So some proofs are more beautiful than others. And uh, this is uh, perhaps a, a, a strange idea to our listeners, but 
Um, one of the best examples we have in the book is we chose what we considered to be the most beautiful proof of the nine-point circle theorem. Um, it, it was elegant. It involved uh, a, a beautiful uh, shifting of perspective, which was a pleasant surprise. It was surprising. And so um, in addition to the, the sort of more obvious aesthetic, we also uh, felt it was important to um, emphasize the, the beauty of proof. Thank you for that. So as we come towards a close, um, there's a couple of questions I like to ask uh, every author on this podcast. One is, is there another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to your text? So early on, we mentioned that we are not the first people to think about the line and the uh, circle as characters. Uh, Norton Juster had a, has a beautiful 1963 book, The Dot and the Line. Um, it was made into an animated short by Chuck Jones and Maurice Noble, and it won the 1965 Oscar for Best Animated Short Film. So if you haven't seen the book or looked at the film, we highly recommend it. Uh, also, the 1884 novel by Edwin Abbott called Flatlands, and that's a book where all the characters live in two dimensions. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting take on things. We, we recommend that. Uh, it was made into a, a movie and a film in 2007. One is shorter than the other. Flatland the movie, Flatland the film. They're both animated in 2007. And then in 2012, there's Flatland 2, Sphereland which you could also take a look at uh, that had, you know, Kristen Bell is, is doing the voice for that. And Tony Hale, if you know who, who those people are. So we, we recommend all of these as uh, accompaniments to the book. Martin Sheen. Oh, Martin Sheen's in that one too. Yeah. Okay. Was it in Flatland or Sphereland? Uh, Flatland. Okay. So, um, and then as a final question that's traditional to the New Books Network, is there another book project you have in the works? We have, since our six-year project on the book, we've actually been focused on shorter projects right now. Uh, we had a, a paper that we worked on together that came out in 2019 uh, on the topic of Laguerre polynomials. And probably more of interest to this audience is that later this year, we'll ha we have a paper on Mabel Sykes that's coming out in uh, the Mathematical Association of America's journal that's called Convergence. So that'll be coming out this year. It's a journal focusing on the history of mathematics. Yes. Very good. I've been talking with Maureen Carroll and Elon Ricken, the authors of Geometry, the Line and the Circle, published in 2018 by the Mathematical Association of America Press. Elon and Maureen, thank you very much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics. Thank Thanks, you, Corey. Corey.